Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. In my opinion, there is no one who has brought more attention to the problem we face with children spending so little time outdoors. My next guest is a journalist and author of many books, including one of my personal favorites. You've heard me reference it probably about a thousand times on this podcast. It's The Last Child in the Woods, also Vitamin N, and Our Wild Calling. His book to help launch an international movement to connect children, families, communities to nature. Today we are talking about connecting to environment, the nature deficit physiology, what gives him hope and a whole bunch more. He's inspired me from the beginning of not only my playground design career, but as an early childhood teacher, and mostly importantly, impacted me as a father for my children. Um, And my wife actually calls him the father of nature play. A big warm welcome to one of my heroes, Richard Louvre. Thank you so much for joining us. That was very kind of you and your wife. No, it's so, so such an impact. Um, we position our house so we can have nature at the back. Um, we're talking about how we get children there more. And um, when I was an early childhood educator, um, a mentor of mine sent me like a screenshot of The Last Child in the Woods. And he went, if you're into this stuff, you've got to read this. And, and that just like ignited my little brain to a whole new realm of the urgency. And it kind of articulated what I saw as a early childhood educator. And my role was as an outdoor educator. So it was working with everyone from babies to kindy and my classroom was the outdoors. And I couldn't quite put my hand on like the disconnect between the childhood I had and the experiences and the level of engagement children were having in my care that I was trying to teach. And then to read your book just went, this is what you want to think. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you. Um, as we start with all guests, um, where did you like to play as a child? Uh, well, early uh, childhood, grade school, uh, um, we lived on the edge of Kansas City, uh, the suburban edge, and behind us was a big cornfield and then woods that seemed to go on forever. And I spent much of my boyhood in those woods with my dog that you can see behind me there, Banner, who was an extraordinary dog. I write about him in the new book. And uh, uh, my parents often did not know where I was, but Banner always did. And he would go home when I was up to no good. And my mother knew it when Banner would show up. So those woods, uh, as I write, entered my heart. And I uh, uh, go there to those woods sometimes when I, when I need them. And even though the bulldozers did take most of them away eventually. Yeah, it's the phrase you, I've heard you refer to. It's the forgetting of the normal and the bulldozers come in and it's another step towards the forgetting of the normal that we experience. I think I I should credit somebody else. I can't remember who said that. I'm trying to remember, but it's environmental uh, amnesia, environmental amnesia is that you become used to what you have and that wasn't what your parents had. And so you consider that normal, your parents consider something else normal and it changes over time and we've gotten way too accustomed to the destruction of nature and that's unfortunately uh, uh, normal to us we we i ask you to reflect then and it does get that nostalgic feeling back and you reflect and you think oh these better times before but i've heard you say it's moving beyond nostalgia and the importance of it yeah 
So do you want to elaborate on that thought? Because it's something I try to convey all the time. It's like, no, this isn't just a nostalgia thing. This is a necessity. Yeah. Um, well, not only that, but I never use the phrase back to nature. Mm. Or I try not to. Uh, I say forward to nature. Because actually nature is the, we can find the solution to many of our problems in the natural world. And the new technologies can come out of the natural world that are kind of earth-based technologies rather than just electronics that can help us deal with climate change and biodiversity collapse and, and even creating better social lives for ourselves and better cities uh, by you know, designing them with biophilic principles. In other words, nature uh, everywhere, even in, on top of high-rise buildings and, and office buildings and all that. All of that is looking forward to nature. And uh, so in terms of our health, looking forward, not looking back to nature, not going back to nature, but going forward to nature. Yeah. And to touch on your evolution in your ecological growth, um, what took you from playing with your dog in nature, exploring cornfields to being involved in um, riding the last child in the woods? Well, first, the, that cornfield in those woods, uh, you know, that, that really is where Last Child started. Uh, and I, I like, like to point out that I pulled out, I had such a sense of ownership of those woods and those fields that I think I pulled out hundreds, it may have been dozens, but it felt like hundreds of survey stakes. I don't know in Australia, you know, those wooden stakes yeah, with definitely. red fire for future development. And I pulled out a lot of them from my woods and my fields and I made a stack. They made good swords too. <laughs> and uh, cause I, I really want, I thought I could keep the bulldozers away that were developing all around me. And um, I had a, um, a, um, a developer, a housing developer tell in LA when I was speaking there once, told me that I would have been a lot more effective if I'd simply moved the stakes around. <laughs> so don't do that at, at home, kids. Or maybe. Uh, uh, so that sense of, of it entering my heart, that sense of ownership, of, of finding something bigger there than my parents and their problems, or even what I saw on television. Um, I couldn't stand the idea that my kids or future kids would not have that, wouldn't even have a chance for it. And obviously there's a lot of kids that don't have a chance for it right now, who live in uh, cities with very little nature, even though I've made the case since you can find nature everywhere, mm. even in the densest neighborhoods. But I couldn't stand that idea. And I, I noticed that over, I've written 10 books and all of the books that came before the last four, I, somehow I ended up talking about the role of nature in cities, the role of nature in our, in our formative years and our lives as adults. And so that's, it's a long answer, but that's where that came from. And an overarching theme that I love about the way you convey this message is it's not very singular you're not saying um we need to get back to nature so everything else outside nature is bad and also it's embracing that yes this is um there's a feeling of sadness and longing and grief around not being connected with nature but there's a necessity and an underlying feeling of optimism and and coming from an optimistic place in supporting children and taking action towards children. Is that something you've been very conscious of, like balancing that sadness and grief with optimism? Uh, you know, I've become more conscious of it when people like you pointed out. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I set out to do that. Um, uh, but you know, the, the sadness is real. And there's a great eco-philosopher, uh, Glenn Albrecht, he's an Australian eco-philosopher uh, who writes about what he calls solastalgia. And solastalgia is a, is a kind of deep hurting nostalgia 
for the place that is being destroyed around you. Mm. It's not necessarily just for the past. It's a sense that, you know, our home is leaving us right now. And he looked at mining uh, areas where strip mining was destroying land and the effect on people. And he looked at, he continues to look at climate change and how that is uh, affecting people. And it's part of the whole idea of eco uh, anxiety. Uh, but he's, he's a remarkable uh, figure that I often refer to. But in terms of the optimism, um, I like to, you know, Ray Bradbury, the, the great science fiction writer uh, had a great phrase. I interviewed him once and I asked him if he was an optimist and he said, no, I'm an optimalist. <laughs> I like that. Which I thought was great. I'm an optimalist. Um, I'm not anti-tech, and I say that often. Even our language is very difficult. When we talk about a disconnect from nature, we're, we, we're part of nature, too. Yeah, nature. That's the big thing, isn't it? And, and our language constricts us in that way. And it's difficult to talk mm -hmm. about these things because immediately when you say nature deficit disorder, that means we're lacking nature. We're disconnected from it. I think that's true. But I've come to understand, I think, that what I'm really saying is that we are disconnected from uh, our natural selves, the nature within us. We are, in fact, disconnected from ourselves the more we're disconnected from the rest of nature. Uh, but in terms of being anti-tech or being anti-everything else, no, that, that's nature too, in a way. Um, and I'm not anti-tech for a couple of reasons. One is practical. Anytime you tell kids you can't do something, they want to do more of it. So I don't say take the iPhone away from the kid or whatever. I can relate as an adult to that one still. <laughs> <laughs> but the, this, the second reason is that some of the technology can be used to connect to nature. I'm a big fan of digital photography. I take a lot of my own pictures when I go for walks and um, I see things better when I, when I stop and notice them to take a picture. And increasingly, I realize the photographs and some of them I post on Facebook that I tend to take are, are, are some of them are landscapes, but more and more they're a bark, they're a moss on a rock. They're things that are close up that you have to stop to notice. That's one of the reasons I think that digital photography is great for kids because they can, they can stop and notice and then show somebody else and take it home with them, put it on their screen and maybe they'll see something they missed. One of the pictures I took in Arizona was a pine bark and I looked at it very closely on the screen. I saw an eye looking out at me. I said, what's that? I didn't see that. It was a little, little eye right between the thing. And I put it, it was hard to tell. I put it up on the internet and I said, I asked people on my blog to identify, what is that? What kind of critter is that? And I got a lot of answers and some of them said, it's nothing, it's an optical illusion. But one pre-teenager uh, wrote, oh, it's obvious, it's a dragon. <laughs> so I, I wrote, I'm with a kid. <laughs> yeah. I agree with him, it's a dragon, definitely, yeah. no question about it. Yeah, and it offers this, um, I've used, the digital photography and just leaving cameras out in the natural environment for children to pick up and explore. And then similar, but back the other way, I picked up the camera to investigate and kind of remove myself from their nature experience. I could have a sneak peek later on. Um, but then one day I picked up the camera, I was like 300 photos of the ground. Like what? That's pointless. And then I went and had a conversation with the children and they went, they looked at me like I was an idiot and they said, it's our shadows. I didn't even pick it up. And it was all the different shadows on the ground that they were actually taking pictures of. And then from there, they were, went and investigated shadows and went off. But as an adult, I didn't see that, but that was their representation. Yeah. And I, I met a guy the other day who takes kids out on, he's a photographer. He takes them out on nature hikes with cameras. And he took them into the town here, Julian, one day in, in, while the other teachers took the kids out to the mountains and all that. 
And the kids were all over Julian and, and taking picture of grass and the cracks of sidewalks and, and uh, the, you know, the mysterious ants going up the side of the building and, and all of that. And, and that showed him again, that there is nature everywhere, but we have to notice, we have to pay attention. Yeah, hundred percent. And like in my ideal world, my, I, I want children to be so connected and engaged with nature that they have an outcome of identifying as environment, not the environment. Mm-hmm. Time and time again, it's like, what's in the environment? It's trees and rocks and sand and dirt and animals and all this. And you even ask adults that question. And right at the bottom, after you keep pushing and pushing and pushing, they go, oh, us, people. That's the bottom of the list. It's just a, <laughs> yeah. such a framing of that indication of where we've got to and where we are. And everything in environments like out there and we're in here. Um, for the people, we've all we've jumped ahead and that's awesome. But there might be people listening that don't know about this, um, the nature deficit disorder or nature deficit physiology um, that you keyed the phrase of in The Last Child of the Woods, um, which a lot of um, content and a lot of work's been shared around. So could you unpack for our listeners? Because I got the pro to articulate it instead of me trying to fumble through it like I always do. <laughs> well, the genesis of that of that phrase, it, we, my wife and I were driving, she was driving, we were going down the highway. And I was telling her about some of the research that I was discovering that was new research that showed just one example of the effect on cognitive development, mm. health, mental health, physical health, all of that. And, the, and it was attention deficit disorder, uh, which is really uh, considered an epidemic, even though there's questions about that and about what gets diagnosed as, as attention deficit disorder. But this research was showing that just a walk through trees in an urban park in Chicago, the kids, the symptoms of attention deficit disorder in the kids went down considerably. And more and more of the studies were showing that. that that um, that nature could really help nature experience could help kids with attention deficit disorder and when i was telling her about that she says well that sounds like nature deficit disorder so she actually i have to credit her she actually came up with that and i use that in the book in the chapter in one of the chapters and my editor and publishers uh my editors and publisher were wiser than i was and they said you got to put that on the the cover, that phrase. I said, no, no, I'm a hoity-toity journalist. I'm not going to snoop to bumper stickers. They said, no, you got to do that. So I thought about it and finally realized they were right. And I went back into the book and I made that the the core theme and it needed that in the book. And then when I was out on the road and starting to promote it, uh, I realized that the term as corny as it seemed to me has some power. When I listened to the call-ins on radio shows and all that, suddenly people had a way to talk about this thing that they felt was happening, they knew was happening, but they didn't have a language to describe it or to have a conversation about it. So the reason my publisher was right is because uh, without that phrase, there would be no conversation. Yeah. I don't There'd be some, but not to the degree there is now. And that's been one of the great um, surprises of that book is that 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 term has entered the language. In fact, it's entered some over 20 languages now. Yeah. And uh, uh, so that was a long answer to your question. No, it summarizes it perfectly. And um, it reminds me of a saying a friend of mine, Rem, harps on about he says um resonance is the moment in which the brain realizes what the heart's always known to be true yeah and i think that's, that that's beautifully said that um that phrase alone goes that makes sense we have the awards for tv and these uh two tv presenters we're up against for their golden award and one's the gardening show guy and one's the comedian host of tv shows so they're doing these skits about like battling it out and the gardening go goes, 
I don't know what's wrong with Peter Hellyer. I think he had nature deficit disorder as a child. And I was <laughs> like, yes, that's awesome. That's good. Yeah. Um, his name's Costa. He's got like a big beard, looks like a giant garden elf. But he, he knew about nature deficit disorder and put it out there. So another another one. Well, by the way, James Cameron, you know, the yep. Avatar, the, yep. the Avatar. When that first came out, a reporter was asking him, what's, what's it about? And he was, he said, well, what, ultimately what it's about is nature deficit disorder. <laughs> and he said it the other day about, and was quoted talking about the sequel to Avatar. And when he, when I first realized he said that, uh, I wrote a, I wrote a blog that said, well, that's great. I really loved your movie, really did. Um, it would be great if you helped this movement, which is emerging. And one has moved, uh, emerged, certainly in Queensland and Australia, four of your states have uh, uh, nature play campaigns statewide. Yeah. And it's, it's all over in the United States. It's in China, it's, it's around the world. And uh, I wrote that kind of teasing him. I don't know if he ever read it, but I'd like him to put some money where his mouth is, maybe help the Children of Nature Network and yeah. help some of the other yeah. organizations like Nature Play, yeah. some of the other efforts uh, with some of that those millions of dollars making from the Avatar. Movies. Yeah, 100%. And to go into that, it's um, obviously it's been years since you wrote that book. And what's the, what's the changes you've seen in this time? Um, well, th there's been a, obviously, you know, some people things believe and they have evidence for this that things are worse. Um, kids are being handed iPhones as infants, and iPads as infants. That wasn't happening when I wrote Last Child. Um, some of the barriers have gotten higher more difficult, it's true. But we're seeing so much good stuff. And, um, you know, in 2010, I was asked to give the keynote to the American Academy of Pediatrics, their national meeting. And at first I thought, really, nature deficit disorder? Are you sure? I, I, always, I always have a clarification. This is not a known medical diagnosis. Yeah. Maybe it should be, but it's not. I always clarify that. And, um, but they, I was their keynote. And an amazing reaction. Many of them went back and changed their practices. There's a guy named Dr. Robert Czar in Washington, D.C., who went back to D.C., began to literally write nature prescriptions. Then he talked to the other pediatricians in D.C. into doing the same. And then they went the next step. They uh, created a database of all the parks and open space in Washington, D.C., so the doctor could not only write the prescription, but could look at his computer and say, there's a park a block and a half from your house. Here's what you can do there. We've seen that happen. We've seen an explosion in the number going from you know, a handful to hundreds. It's still not thousands, but hundreds of nature-based preschools. We've seen a green schoolyard movement. And you're part of that in, in Australia, uh, in the United States, and in other countries. Uh, uh, there's, there's just a lot more awareness. There was a study done, I think, four years ago, and they repeated a big study that was done 15 years before about Americans' attitude about nature. And what they found is, that, one of the things they found is that the awareness that nature experience has something to do with children's, particularly children's health, had skyrocketed. It had gone from you know ten to a thousand very quickly. Uh, what had not changed is the barriers. They're still there, mm -hmm. even with tens of thousands of people now working to change those barriers. For a lot of kids, it's gotten a lot better, but a lot of other kids, it's not. Yeah. Do you think it's an accessibility challenge or culture? Um. And I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't really say or, or what yeah. percentage may be. Yeah, you know, I one, one of the things I would probably do differently now with Last Child is I would pay more attention to inner city neighborhoods, um, 
you know, to the, the, the real economic difficulties that people have getting in nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, transportation is one of the big barriers. Yeah. If you live in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of nature, how are you going to get to that regional park? Yeah. So, oh. uh, anyhow, go ahead. I was um, blown away when we were at the Children Nature Network conference in um, San Francisco. The children of around that Berkeley area in so many schools, a frightening percentage had never been to the ocean. And you, you live on a bay, you cross the bridge, you're at the ocean. But a majority of that whole school had never been to the ocean. Um, another school just uh, within kilometres or what, like a handful of kilometers away from Golden Gate Park, had never been to Golden Gate Park. Right, right. It's true in San Diego that there was an early study I quoted in Last Child that uh, kids 20 minutes from the Pacific Ocean had never seen the Pacific Ocean, many of them. Um, you know, never learned how to swim. Mm. Most of them in some of the, the inner city schools. Uh, so the inequity of mm. access to nature is a huge thing. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I've spent a lot of time recently, right here recently, actually since 2010, I first wrote about the human right to nature, that we have to think about this as a human right. And in the nature principle, the, the book that followed Last Child, I go into that in more detail and still more in, in the next two. Uh, it, un- Last year, or 2019, I wrote a cover story for Sierra Magazine, the Sierra Club, calling for the recognition of the human right to nature. Yeah. Balanced with nature's right to be. You know, one doesn't exist without the other. And, uh, but until we start thinking about uh, both children's in particular, but adults too, right to nature connection. Mm. It will be patronized. It will be patted on the head and said, well, that's nice. That's a nice to have. Yeah. Instead of necessity, which is what the research shows. Yeah. Uh, so, and you've got this great and, race. And also, sorry, 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 go ahead. No, you go ahead. The, 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 the rights of nature also have to be recognized in that and that's a dicey topic that is controversial but i think we need to begin to think that way much more Uh, um one of the thing one of the things that's happened that's very good is the international union for the conservation of nature the iucn that's the biggest network of uh nonprofits ngos in the world conservation ngos in the world tens of thousands of organizations uh, in 2012, with the help of a little bit of Children Nature Network, um, they passed a resolution saying this is a human right, this connection for children uh, to nature. And there's been talk since about trying to get it included in the list of, of human rights for children, children's yeah. rights in the UN. It ought to be there, I think. Yeah, 100%. It's, uh, it's quite simply that the human right. And you touched on it briefly there. Um, we are referencing children a lot within nature deficit disorder, but um, I saw a post of yours recently saying it's an adult thing as well, which we tend to forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and in fact, one of the early customer reviews on Amazon, it gets good reviews on Amazon, but one of them said, I totally missed the point. Clearly, I was a nice guy, but I totally missed the point. It's about adults as adults. Well, yeah, if you read the book carefully, you would have seen that parents were involved. Yeah. And grandparents and all of that, that, that it does affect us, that we get all of the same benefits of the natural world, stress reduction, physical health, mental health, all of the things that studies are showing, as our kids do when we yeah. take them outdoors into nature. Um, and, uh, you know, that's enormously important. And in fact, the nature principle, the second, uh, you know, these books I'm shamelessly promoting back here, the, the nature principle, which is the second of the, of the four books is more about adults and imagining what a society would be like if our lives, all of our lives were as immersed in nature as they are every day, 
as they are in technology. Mm. Imagine the impact. And talking about generational impact and how this helps everyone, um, the parents of the children that featured in The Last Child of the Woods are now parents with children. So have you followed up with and had contact with those children from the book and how that's impacted their life or where it's developed into at all? Uh, it's a great question that I'm not sure I have an answer to because I hear a lot from a lot of young parents. Mm. And they're young, so if they're if they're you know 20 years old or 24 years old, the book came out 16 years ago. So mm. they were clearly little kids when I wrote the book. So and I hear from them. I get email from them saying it's affected their lives and their, how they raise their kids. Um, but one of the great gratifying things is to hear from you know people like your wife, mm. you know, who and you who have said that often it was a, an affirmation of what they already were doing and they needed that affirmation yeah even though they were already doing it uh so there's hope yeah well, there, the last line in the nature principle is there is no practical alternative to hope i mean despair will get you only so far yeah, absolutely. And um, it is this, like, especially when it comes to sustainability and I think the basis for um, environmental sustainability is social connection, identifying as environment and not it placed over there, having fulfilment and accomplishment in a space. But when we try to teach about environment, we're flooding our children with these dire, dire consequences. And you talk in your book a lot about um not protecting our children from physical harm and risk and exposing them to risk, which nature naturally does. Um, but then I love the other side of things and you convey the importance of protecting our children from the fire and brimstones, if you will, of um, environmental change and um, climate change. Yeah, there's a, another writer that, your listeners should know about David Sobel, hmm. who uh, is was at Antioch University in uh, New England, and uh, he's written about what he calls ecophobia, and that's associating nature with disaster and the end of times, essentially. Uh, that you know, by the time the kid is two, even the kid is flooded with negative associations with nature, with mm. climate change and, and the, uh, you know, destruction and um, the end of things. And, you know, I, I would like to imagine a day when kids uh, learn of the joy of nature before they hear about its destruction. Uh, it's not to say that as, uh, later, <laughs> at yeah. an age appropriate time, they shouldn't hear about climate change and all these things, but they, there should be the context of having fallen in love with it first. Yeah. Because if you haven't fallen in love with nature, it's highly unlikely that you will really be dedicated to its preservation and to our own preservation. Yeah. Uh, there will always be conservationists and environmentalists, but if we're not careful, increasingly they'll be carrying nature in their briefcases, not in their hearts. And that's not a sustainable relationship. No, it's not real. It's not a real life experience to have these monuments of nature, not nature itself. Yeah. And again, to see ourselves as an intimate part of nature, not as separate from it. Um, the, the new book, Our Wild Calling, which is about uh, our relationship with other animals, uh, including pets, but like my dog up there, but also um, in the book, it, it's more about wildlife than it is about domesticated life. I don't know. I, I don't know if you want to talk about the new book. But... Uh, absolutely, I, th I think it's integral because it's it's coming into that ecosystem. We can't be a part of the this. We can't identify as environment and go, oh well, it's trees and nature, and well, yeah. it's other living things and our synergistic relationship on that deeper plane. 
with these things that give us that um, humbling experience. Right. You know, one of the part of the, some of the good news is that when I wrote Last Child, I could find about 60 studies that I could cite with confidence. Uh, the, the impact of nature experience on child development, on human development throughout life had essentially been ignored by the academic world, except for a few very fine uh, uh, pioneers in that. Some of them are in Australia. Um, in fact, a high proportion of them are Australian. Um, only 60 studies. How yeah. could something, this is literally the elephant in the room. Yeah. You know, how could something that large, how the how the natural world affects our development mm. experience. But it had been. Today, if you go to the Children Nature Network website, which is childrenandnature.org, you'll see over a thousand studies that have been abstracted. It's free for anybody to go there to learn about the research. And yeah. many of these abstracts, which are independently done, by the way. Yeah, and peer-reviewed as well it, to get yeah. on there. It's not chucking everything up. It's a great right. resource. I call on it all the time. Yeah, we're, we're very conservative about making any claims. And we don't make, this is really carefully done. And now there's over a thousand studies and they're still coming in, many of them from Australia, 10, 15, 20 a month. That uh, This is now a growth industry to study the human relationship with, yeah. with nature on our health and our cognitive functioning and, and all of that. That's good news. But when you look at those studies, as I started to do, you realize that almost all of those studies, and they all tend to point in the same direction, by the way, which is this is fundamental to our humanity. Yeah. But when you look at them, almost all of them are about green space, one way or another. Now, many of them, there's kind of an assumption that there are some animals in that green space, in addition to us. Uh, but uh, pretty much it's on the effect of trees and all of that on us. What about the animals? What about the wild animals in particular? And so the genesis of this latest book, Our Wild Calling, is that, is um, if there's a way to be intimate with nature that comes most naturally to us, Yes, it's possible to get intimate with trees. And the more we find out about how trees communicate and their complexity, uh, the more we realize that they're having a conversation. Yeah. But the animals, we already kind of understand that genetically. What about that? What about the, the coyote that walks in the US, walks through our backyard, and we have eye contact with that? During the pandemic, something interesting has happened. I bet this is true in Australia. Uh, on, when people had to sec be secluded, when they had to go into their houses and stay home from work, many of them started looking out the window and realized there were birds out there. There was, there was wildlife right there in their, in their yard, if they were lucky enough to have a yard, or on the window ledge across an urban street where a raptor was making a nest. And they started reporting this all over the world. People started reporting, including Australia, animals that had never been seen by most people walking down the middle of, of the street because there weren't any cars around, but the cars were best. Yeah. And um, all there was this kind of awakening, I think. Now, our Royal Calling was written before that, obviously, but there was this, this kind of awakening that um, we're not alone on this earth. Mm. We re recognize that at the precise moment when we felt the most alone. Yeah, during crisis. Yeah, yeah during the pandemic. I, I wrote a piece about that for the LA Times and people have recognized that. People flock to nature now. They flock yeah. to the trailheads here. People that have never done that now are doing it. And it'll be interesting to see how long that lasts. I suspect it, it'll last. Um, but sometimes you don't know what you got till it's gone yeah. or you're not allowed to go there. Yeah. But the animals kept us company. Yeah. Um, and so did the trees. To share a moment I had 
in reflection and my place in nature when um, COVID first hit, we're moving into lockdown, being a business owner, responsible and for my employees and the uncertainty of the world. Um, I had a moment looking out my backyard and I'm fortunate enough to look onto bushland and I've got um, cockatoos and galahs and um, kookaburras all there. And I was like there in my head just going, oh, what's going to happen? It's so uncertain. I look up and the birds are doing the exact same thing they've done every other day. Mm -hmm. And I went, this thing keeps moving if I'm stressed, freaking out about it or not. They keep existing. They keep moving their thing on. And it kind of gave me this piece of saying, hey, this world's designed to keep moving and develop. And yes, things change, but there's always a future. I have a friend who's a comedian and he looked out his window one day during the shutdown and he said, he saw a squirrel. He said, that squirrel doesn't care about herd immunity. <laughs> it's, it's going on with its life. It's living. I can too. Yeah, it's you know, exactly right. Yep, absolutely. I relate 100%. Um, what are your hopes? Like we're living in these unique times and this whole progression from years of being delved deep into this topic of connection, nature, environment. What's your hopes for communities moving forward? Um, well, there's the, the, the immediate community you live in, but then there's mm. also the world community, the planetary community. It's a community that extends beyond humans. Part of the idea of the last most recent book of our calling is that um, you know, parallel to the, to the pandemic that came after I wrote the book, medical folks were talking about an epidemic, a pandemic of human loneliness. Mm. We really got a dose of that during the pandemic, even more than normal, although we found ways around it. Um, and they were reporting that this human isolation uh, is now associated, they found, with many of the same diseases as alcoholism. Mm -hmm. No, I'm sorry, as smoking and obesity. Uh, and it was taking a terrible toll on people, not just suicide, but because it's associated with these other terrible diseases. Um, and that gets blamed a lot. It gets blamed on Mark Zuckerberg and anti-social media. You know, there's only so much we can blame on Mark Zuckerberg. And a lot of this is because the bad design of urban, mm -hmm. urban life. It's uh, because of fear of strangers. It's, it's interesting, a lot of the very same barriers that are keeping kids out of nature are the same ones that are making us as a species lonelier and lonelier. I make the case in our wild calling that all of those things are true, but that this loneliness is rooted in an even deeper loneliness, which is species loneliness, mm. our whole species, that we are desperate to not feel alone in the universe. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Why else would we look for intelligent plant, uh, life on other planets? You know, when Stephen Hawking has told us that may not be a good idea to find. Uh, because we're desperate to not feel alone in the universe. There's religious implications of that, obviously. But I make the case in our world calling that we're not alone. Mm. We just don't realize it. That in fact, if we pay attention, as many of us did during the pandemic, will notice that we are surrounded by a great conversation. It's going on all around us, between species, across species. And the more that science understands about how other animals communicate, the complexity of that, as well as trees, the more this is literal, this isn't just figurative, yeah. that there is this conversation and that 
when we notice it, when we recognize that and become more a part of it, we don't feel so alone. Yeah. Do you think we're currently in kind of the void of knowing that we're connected subconsciously through evolution and generationally and coming from the land and being a part of environment and we're currently in the void of moving from that we've lost the subconscious connection and now we actually have to move to a conscious realization that hey this is very tangible and we need to explain out what we've innately known previously but now we're having to move to a tangible message yeah i think that's well said and people who do your kind of work of play area design of using nature and that are part of the the part of the great movement i think to to move this from poetry to to practice uh, um, it doesn't happen accidentally we have to create this new civilization of nature connection uh, and there's great opportunity in that we have to do that for ourselves and our children for obvious reasons mm. but we also have to do it for other species too during the great fires of australia uh was that last year or year before year before yeah yeah many of us watched the images that came out of australia and were stunned by them now i live in southern california we have the same kind of fires mm. here but the images that stuck, I think, that people talk about even now are the fires in Australia and then those images of people getting on their bicycles and having lost their own homes, you know, going into that forest and taking water to wild animals, mm. to koalas, and, and the koalas were <laughs> climbing up the leg of the person on the bike to receive the water. There was something profoundly moving about that. It speaks well of our species and not a lot does lately. Mm. Um, Glenn Albrecht, the Australian philosopher that I mentioned before, I, I asked him about this and he said that he agreed with me, something I've written about, which is the environmental movement relies way too much on data. Yes, the science is absolutely important, but it's not doing the trick. It's not yep. changing hearts and minds to the degree we have to. It's not moving people from yeah. knowledge to action. And he says, I think wisely, that he looks at the great social movements that have moved people from um, knowledge to action, uh, like uh, civil rights movement to an extent, gay rights, um, feminism. He says they're all based on relationship, on love, mm. ultimately. What about the environmental movement? Are we basing that on that essential love of nature? Are, are we talking about that enough? Or are we just delivering the data and expecting change? Yeah. We've got to deliver the data, but we have to do that now. We also have to take the next step which I've argued for recently. And that gets to the issue of hope. Mm. Um, it's not blind hope. Uh, I argue for what I call imaginative hope. We've been stuck in a dystopian trance for a long time in which most of the images people to carry around in their heads of what the far future will look like, look like Blade Runner and Mad Max. Mm. I mean, literally, that's what people think the future will be. Um, what happens to a culture that can no longer come up with beautiful images, not just sustainable, not just sustaining, but beautiful images of a nature-rich future? What happens to that kind of civilization? It'll get what it can imagine. You know, Be careful what you wish for, you might get it. Be yeah. careful what you imagine, you just might get it. So increasingly, I've been arguing that we have to develop imaginative hope in our schools, in our, in our organizations, in the way each of us approaches the world. 
we have to imagine that world we want to go to. Martin mm -hmm. Luther King, one of the lessons of his life is that, uh, as he taught, no movement, no culture will survive uh, if it cannot imagine a future that we want to go to. We have to take that step. It's not just the data of what's going wrong. Mm. And that ties beautifully into, you know, that loneliness piece, like you're not going to, there's not going to be that depth of loneliness when there's a purpose beyond yourself. Mm -hmm. When you do have that imaginative hope, not just for you and your own outcomes, but for something beyond yourself, which that's going to be coming back to that subconscious motivation those intrinsic motivators that we know as our innate truth is to care is to love and mm -hmm. that can't be debated yes i how many parts per million i could debate that all day <laughs> from a million different angles what you can't debate is how much someone loves their children and how much love they intend for their children to move into to create the future where they can love on their children and not only just their children like you said, the animals, the environments around them as well. Being, we're talking about these things like love and these innate traits that we're, we're blessed with. What does that look like for in a day-to-day -day practice? Like where can people start? If people are hearing this message for the first time and they're inspired as I sit here inspired, what is your recommendation on their action to take? Well, you know, um, Our Wild Calling was the hardest book that I've done. And it's based on stories that people told me about encounters with wild animals, yeah. mainly wild animals, but also their pets. Uh, let me just briefly tell you a couple that are very it's, like, a, it's on my list here. I've got it. Okay. I've got it um, right. put here and circled. Was in my notes is like octopus okay. story because that okay, hearing okay. that that octopus story blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of backing into answering your question. Good. Uh, the, these stories that I solicited from people and hundreds of stories were sent to me. Obviously, don't use them all in the book, but. Um, they had common denominators, as it turned out, as I really looked mm. at these stories and listened to them. Some of them were interviews, some of them were sent to me. Um, tell you one story, an oceanographer at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, California. He's about 80 now, I think. And when he was a student at University of Washington, he would go out in the Pacific in scuba gear and he would collect his samples for his schoolwork. He was studying starfish, but he was also a starving student, so he collected lunch. And uh, he said one time he was doing that, he was, he was down on the bottom of the ocean, he was scraping around the sand, and, and suddenly he felt something very large, intuitive, sensed something very large come above him and stop. That's usually not a good sign he looked up and he saw a big tentacle coming down and then another one here. And he said, at the risk of anthropomorphizing it, it was one of those giant uh, Pacific octopuses that, you know, wingspan of about 12 feet. And it said, it looked at me and it decided I was a clam and it came down and got me. And it did, it wrapped him in its arms. And he said, people think those arms are soft. They're anything but, you can't budget. These arms are also peculiar because they have, they're filled with photons. Those are the cells that we use to see. Now it's not that the octopus was seeing him with its arms, but it was getting to know him a lot better. And each of these arms has what amounts to its own brain that where they work together. So he was in the clutches of this octopus. And he realized he was running out of oxygen. So he kicked off the bottom of the ocean with all the strength he had. 
And he and the octopus went up and up and up in the water. Then as they went up in the spiral of water, um, the octopus started moving around his body. He could feel the razor sharp beak of the octopus coming around his neck until he was looking into the octopus's eye. And he said, I don't know what happened there, but something happened. This is a hardcore scientist. He's one of the most respected oceanographers among oceanographers in the world. And he said, something changed. And he said, kind of making fun of himself, I think we had, we, we found our non-aggression pact. And the octopus began to release him just a little bit. They were still having eye contact and they both hit the surface of the, of the water. And Paul ripped off his mask, gasping for air. And he looks down and the octopus is settling under the water and he's still making eye contact with it. And then it starts to disappear. What does Paul do then? He puts his mask back on and he dives and he swims after the octopus down into the darkness. And he told me this detail that he didn't tell me that didn't get into the book. And I wish it had, it's great detail. He said, as they went down, they spiraled each other. And then he ran out of breath again and headed for the surface. That experience changed him in ways that he, he again, hardcore scientist, he used, the, so what happened there? He used the phrase spiritual. I kind of grimaced when he told me because you're not supposed to talk about that as a hardcore scientist. And he doesn't know if the octopus felt spiritual, who knows, but, but he did, he, something changed. He felt it was between him and the octopus. Um, second story, uh, a woman and a mother in Toronto walked in, told me this story, walked into the living room and her six-year-old son was stretched out on the carpet with their big dog named Jack, who was also stretched out next to him. And her son had his arm around the dog. And she heard her son say, I don't have a heart anymore. And she said, what are you saying? And without looking up, her son said, my heart is in Jack. What is that? You know, we felt that with people. We feel that with the animals too, other animals. But what is that, that permeability, that space that gets filled with something? Um, third story, I was on a lake near my house in San Diego. I was in my little boat one morning. I was alone, nobody was on the lake, big lake. And, uh, I have a little electric motor, very quiet. And I noticed on the shore what I thought were two turkey vultures eating a big fish, a dead carp. And I wanted to look more closely. So I ease up with my electric motor. I got within, within about 20 feet of them. You don't usually get within 20 feet of golden eagles. And that's what they were, two big golden eagles. And so for what seemed like forever, and I say that, because it means something, it seemed like forever. We did this, the eagles would go down, take a bite and come back up. And go down, take a bite and come back up. Did that over and over and over again. And I'm in my boat watching this, feeling this and something changed, just like Paul said. Mm. And I don't know what the eagles were thinking. Maybe they were just trying to figure out if I was edible. But the point was something, I felt something there that I felt when I was a kid in those woods with other animals. I went home and I told my son about it, who was home from college. And I said, you know, Matthew, whoever I say I am, I'm not. Whoever I really am is who I was in those moments with those eagles. And I don't have the words to explain it. This is beyond human language. The, over and over again, people would say that kind of thing in these stories again and again. And, um, and they also talked about these altered states as I 
describe them. When I said it seems like forever, uh, time either disappeared or stopped. Paul felt that with the octopus. Again and again, people described that. Other altered states, a sense of scale disappears or changes radically. You know, watch an ant anthill for a while mm -hmm. on their level and your sense of scale of the world will change. Um, so I, the, the mystery of the book is what is that? What is that? Uh, there's a great uh, uh, philosopher uh, named Martin Buber. I always be, have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. <laughs> and he, uh, he wrote a great essay called I and Thou, I and Thou. And his thesis is about people was that you and I don't exist. Not really. What exists is right here. It's what's between us. It's the relationship. And he used that word in a different way than, it, than we use it day to day. He meant it as a kind of electricity that some people call God. Um, that's what I felt. That's what Paul described. That's what all these people are in the book, one way or another, that's what they mm -hmm. describe. Um, I like to name things and there isn't a name for that. Now, maybe in some uh, indigenous culture, I, I would expect I yeah. would find that word in, in their language. But I call that the habitat of the heart, what mm -hmm. is between us and another animal. Mm. And that I believe that there are two habitats. One habitat is the physical natural habitat that we spend so much time working hard as we should to preserve and protect and teach our children about. And the other habitat is the habitat of the heart. And we spend very little time talking to our children about that. Or trying to protect it or nurture it. If one of those habitats goes, so does the other one. That's why it's so important to begin to recognize this thing between us and other animals. You ask, what's the, the main thing that people can do? On the book tour for our wild calling until it was truncated by the, the, the pandemic. Um, often I was asked, well, what's the main thing that uh, you want people to take away? They had a script for Canadian interviews on radio and over and over again, I was, it got frustrating. And finally I decided, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, it, the main thing I want people to do is notice. Notice what's there, notice the animals around you, notice that thing between you. Um, and I realized, that I'd already written that. It's in the introduction. <laughs> I'd forgotten it. Um, I talked about meeting a fox on a path on Kodiak Island that stopped me in my tracks. And I looked into its eyes and it was, the foxes on Kodiak are the biggest in the world, I think. And, he, and I, in his eyes, I, I didn't know it. It looked like a universe in his mm. eyes. It was a mystery. And he stopped me and I didn't, is he rabid? Is he going to bite me? He wasn't budging from that path. And so I finally took a step and he stepped over to the side and we walked up the path together side by side until he veered off into the grass. He was not being fed by the people there. He was wild. And in the end of the, the um, introduction, I say, now, I don't know if... Was that fox trying to tell me something? I don't know. Hmm. Maybe he was just trying to tell me to pay attention. At the time I was going through my wallet, it wasn't big. And there's Alaskan brown bears all over that island. Hmm. I should have been paying attention. I had to when I confronted the fox. So I finally figured out when people asked me, what's the main message from this book? I said, pay attention, hmm. notice. Stop, notice. Yeah. I was having a discussion this last week about the importance of beauty. 
And for me, when I notice the beauty in the world, that light in the trees in a certain way or the birds or the texture in bark, I know I'm personally in a good place. And you've just articulated like maybe I'm coming from that heart habitat when I'm being aware of that beauty and, mm. and allowing me to be present in my physical habitat. So, and it's kind of like that true feeling of presence and something you've unpacked so many times so beautifully is that feeling of humility and being humbled within both habitats now that you put it that way. I was always thinking of that physical habitat, but being humbled in your heart to care, being humbled and vulnerable in your heart to love and then to take action in that physical habitat. And you know what, one of the other characteristics and perhaps the most important one of these stories that is shared across these stories, for Paul and the octopus, for the little boy and his dog, for me and the, the eagles on the shore, during those moments of encounter, there is absolutely no way to feel alone. There's no way to be lonely in those moments. That's where we need to go. On that note, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I'm feeling humbled <laughs> right now by the opportunity to have this beautiful conversation and um, feel the joint love for our environment and our place in it. So thank you so much um, for all you've done for not just me and my development and being a father, but for all the people I know, so many children, all your articles, your books, articulating these innate truths that we internally know and articulating such a way so our brains can comprehend it. I've just got so much gratitude and thanks and all you do for the Children and Nature Network in America and by association, Nature Play in Australia and allowing me to be a better designer and contributor to children's play. So thank you so much. And thanks for your, um, you know, the people who do your kind of work. I didn't know when I wrote Last Child, I get to spend many years with some of the nicest people on earth because there's something about this issue that draws good, good people. And I consider the work you're doing and so many teachers who are taking their kids outdoors and so many pediatricians or prescribing nature and urban designers that are making sure that future cities have lots of nature in them. I consider all of that sacred work and the broadest definition of that work. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for joining us on another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. One final thought on that podcast that I want you to take away and put out into the world is to move forward with imaginative hope, beautifully put forward by the amazing Richard Louvre. Love, not data, humility, and have a non-aggressive pact with the world. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to you joining us again soon on Play It Forward Worthy Podcast.